0: Πιστεύω στο Rezondance FM γιατί με διασκεδάζει, με ενημερώνει, με εκπλήσει, με ενοχλεί, με προκαλεί και με εμπνέει. Εσύ γιατί πιστεύεις στο σε FM? Για περισσότερες πληροφορίε επισκέψεις σε λίγο μας στο ίντερνετ www.rezondancefam.com Good afternoon, I'm Aaron Bastani and welcome to this week's edition of Navarra FM, brought to you by Navara Media and Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. If you find yourself listening to Resonance frequently and would like to support the station, you can always make a donation by going to resonancefmcom forward slash support. The rest is relatively self-explanatory. It's a fantastic project which relies in no small part on the generosity of its listeners, so I can't recommend it enough if you have a few quid spare going this month. Regarding that other emerging media titan of our media, You'll be able to find the show on the website, NavarraMedia.com, very shortly after this is broadcast. And if there isn't enough, you can also follow us on a number of social media channels: Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. What's more, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, and you can, of course, keep up with the Buzzfeed of the Left Navarra Wire, that can be found at wire.navarramedia.com. This week, I have the immense pleasure of being joined by the Guardian's senior economics correspondent, Aditya Chakraborty. Hi, Aditya. Hello, Aaron. Sorry, senior so economics editor is that? Commentator. What? Commentator. Only a commentator.
1: Not a reporter, not an editor.
0: Oh, no way. The kind of seniority with which your pieces come off the page, is an easy mistake to make on my behalf. Last week, last Sunday, I believe, it was a, a piece you wrote with uh, Sophie Robinson Tillett, which catalyzed me into asking you onto the show this week. That was called The Truth About Gentrification, Regeneration or Contrick. I was going to print that out as a, you know, I was going to go over it before the show, and I, I found to my surprise it's a 34 page PDF. It's a long article, it's well worth it. But before we unpack some of the ideas within that piece and some other pieces you've written over the last couple of months, focusing on London, gentrification, what's changing in terms of who lives and who doesn't live in central London specifically, I just wanted to ask you quickly, how central is the role of property within the UK economy, particularly that in London? How important is it? And how politically imperative is the housing bubble we're seeing re-emerge in terms of growth overall? How crucial is it? How important is it?
1: I think you can actually see it in the reaction to that piece that you were just talking about, which, as you say, is, is so chunky. You know, nearly 9000 words. You think it'd kill, you know, it'd be killed online. Um, but it actually took off online. It did tremendously well, uh, both for readers and people picking up on it and sharing it. And I think that says something about property being kind of the British neuralgia. You know both politically and economically it 's a thing now that we can 't do without economically. you know the only reason we 've really got out of a crisis is because the coalition effectively stopped austerity and decided to just chuck you know bung hundreds of millions at the housing market instead uh, and politically too, i think it 's it's the thing that binds Thatcher with Blair, is that they were the two prime ministers who presided over a housing market boom, which is why they come to see seem so successful in retrospect, whereas Major and Brown were the losers who presided over a bust. Um, so it's very different. I mean, it's it's it makes the British almost... Uh, a laughing stock when you go to other parts of Europe where they're not so dependent upon the own occupation thing. Uh because they say, Oh, you British are so hung up on on housing, you know, even senior central bankers over in Europe will say, Oh, you know, you British got a serious problem with your debt and your, your housing market. The two are completely linked. Um one stat that I think is really quite interesting is um my friends at the Centre for Research in Economic and Social Cultural Change, based at Manchester University, did a um, quick thing where they looked at GDP growth and they compared it to housing equity withdrawal. Mm. And they found that basically housing equity withdrawal accounted for the the big, the big bursts of uh, GDP growth from Thatcher through Blair. Mm hmm. That's how hung up we are on the housing market. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely central. Mm-hmm. It's both the thing that, that we depend upon and it's the thing that probably smothers us as well.
0: Mm. I mean, there's also some research, I think, that came out of the US, 2002, 2003. US economy is in, I think, recession without um, the domestic consumption that's coming from equity withdrawal. That's obviously after 9-11 and so on and so forth. So that's this is another thing I want to talk about on today's show. This is not just a, or is it, a peculiarly British problem what are the specificities of the role of housing in the UK economy and the political economy of UK housing. So it's obviously intimately tied up with the electoral fortunes of mm. prime ministers, of governments. Mm. It is the, the grease, so to speak, of clearly retrogressive measures being taken elsewhere in the economy and social policy. And that's kind of assuaged by you know rising house prices or the hope that wages can at least keep up with rent or the ability to... Uh, expedite demand through things like help to buy and so on. So as long as governments think they can do that, then they don't really mind so much about how retrogressive the rest is. So here's another question before, like I say, we focus on these pieces. It's going to be three pieces. First one is, I said, the truth about gentrification, regeneration or contract did take off incredibly long, not suited to digital, but, you know, that's, like you say, I think these are such germane... uh, points i think it's so important for so many kinds of different groups in in britain right now that everybody's talking about it second piece the enfield experiment was a piece you wrote at the beginning of february we'll talk about that Uh, and then a third piece boristan uh was a kind of satire the republic that we now live
1: in yeah the the country formerly known as london yeah
0: yeah so it would be really important if we could talk about those Mm. three pieces in particular sort of let's try and anchor the entire show around them but so second point how specific is then housing and the political and economic debates in the UK, both regards to growth and in terms of the consent that we give to those who govern us.
1: Just to pick up off your last point, you can answer it by just picking up your last point. Uh, If you look at the the UK economy at the moment, we're clearly in an era in which there is not a recovery as it would be understood by anyone. uh, Certainly anyone outside the M25 would not recognise this as being a recovery. Yeah, we know that. Uh, wages are not keeping up with inflation. Every now and then there's a blip, but then you take out something like bonuses and all of a sudden actually we're still below inflation. And this is just a year away from from, um, an election. What What is the great political kind of economic trick that you then play? Well, you hope that there is a housing market boom, which effectively keeps everyone out of negative equity, everyone who bought a home in 2005, 2006, 2007, anywhere outside London, South East, they're still actually below um, where they were in 2008 on their house prices. But cheap, ultra cheap interest rates, ultra cheap mortgage rates mean that they're still solvent. But the other thing you really hope for is that there's some kind of housing market boom, which happens not just within London and the South East, but spreads across the rest of the country. So people feel, well, I may not be earning that much when I leave the house in the morning, but when I come back, my house has earned the amount of money that I could have earned when I was working.
0: Also, it's key in paying down the deficit, right? Because right now, you know, austerity is meant to be a common, well, paying down this deficit. This, well, last year, the deficit in this country was £107 billion, mm. I believe, down from 115 the previous year. The government, on taking office in 2010, said it would eliminate yeah. the deficit by 2015. Yeah. We're one year before 2015, it's £107 billion a year. I think the great weakness of the left is that it's not accepting this as a huge problem. The deficit is a huge problem. Modern economies can't work like this for, you know, um, prolonged or, you know, sort of, it seems like forever in That's the UK right. economy, yeah. essentially, since yeah. the early 1980s. But what's happened is, because austerity measures haven't been that successful, 100, that £107 billion figure, a lot of that's consequent to increased tax receipts from this growth. Last year, the UK had the highest growth in the G8, I believe, 1.8%, uh, down from one9 It's going down to one7 but still equal, slightly higher than the United States. This year, predicted to have the highest growth again in the G8, the, the eighth, eight, eight largest economies in the world. So I think a lot of that debate as well about, oh, we've cut the deficit. It's not coming from, you know, smart... Policy measures—it's coming from, like you say, uh, capturing tax from what's an unsustainable political economy, as we've found out so many times before. Which is a, a housing move so it's crucial there as well. Uh, how important? You talked quickly about uh, cheap interest rates, low mm. interest rates, historically mm. low interest rates, one point five percent. It's looking at the Bank of England might increase them sometime early next year. Mm. What, what are the consequence for listeners? If interest rates went up, you know, and this is, you know, the the the, 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 the historical average of interest rates in this country in the medium term is about four percent. All right. Let's say they return to that. What does that mean for the average Brit who owns a home? Blimey! Uh,
1: well, take a step back. Okay, uh, you made a, a very good point where you said that the the left uh, or the certainly the mainstream left had failed to deal with the structural problems of the economy uh, which are sometimes represented by the, the deficit that we've got uh, and actually if you throw into that the current account deficit the, 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 the our trade in goods and services for the rest of the world well we're also running a, a large deficit mm. there so uh, effectively this is a country that's failed to pay its way in the world it's no longer sustainable economically why is that and actually the right, as represented by Osborne and Cameron, had a pretty good analysis of that when they came to power. It's all there. It's all the, you know, we cannot go on with having an economy which is so tethered to the fortunes of one corner of the country. We can't be so reliant upon the city of London. We can't continue to have a strong private sector in London, the southeast, and effectively a kind of boondoggle system of creating jobs outside the, you know, north of the Watford Gap, where the public sector fill in the gaps. They had that analysis. The problem was they thought it would all be sorted out if you simply cut government and allowed the market to do its thing and it would re- react to the you know, historic buying opportunities it would suddenly find North of the Watford Gap. That hasn't happened. That, that, that is their failure. Um, instead of which, what you've ended up with is an economy in 2014 which looks like an, an even more absurd version of the economy in 2007. So we're even more dependent upon London Southeast, South East know, to power our way through. We're even more hooked on debt because we, as as households, we haven't made very much progress in cutting our debt at all. And said what we've been encouraged to do is rack up the debt. This then brings us on to interest rates. Now, I think I would... I've nuanced what you say, said a little bit. I don't think Mark Carney's the Governor of the Bank of England because he's going to jack up rates to 4% anytime soon. No. I think, I think his, his entire job is basically to sit side. on interest rates yeah. as far as possible until you get past the next general election and then they'll start to creep up bit by bit by bit. What kind of impact that might have? Well, the Resolution Foundation do an awful lot of good work on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a guy there called Matthew Whitaker, mm-hmm. um, And effectively, you start to see... All those people who bought those new houses in 2005, up to 2000, up to the collapse of Northern Rock, who start to go bit by bit, tranche by tranche, underwater. Uh, And then other people who are getting by because their mortgages, you know, their track mortgages or whatever, have actually dropped a huge amount. They've done reasonably well on their mortgages as a result of the crisis. They start to find that they're actually, they can't do, you know, holidays anymore. They can't buy those uh, consumer durables that they thought they might um, all the stuff that you see advertising in the paper—that's uh, a real mark of the the way we've come. If you look at the look at my own paper, in the wake of the crash, all of a sudden all the kind of the curries and the PC worlds of this, of this world—they weren't advertising the same volume in the Guardian. And then as we start to come out of the recession, come twenty twelve. Uh, you know, and it's out of the slump in a serious way, you suddenly start to note that all of a sudden you were getting all kinds of consumer durables back in the paper advertised. Um, and I suspect, though, if we were actually to see interest rates go back up in any meaningful way, which I don't predict happened zero point
0: five percent next year after the election?
1: Yeah, but how much of a difference does that, that make? Could, I think it would like a, a little bit out of demand, no? It would, it would, you know, you're talking about taking air out of the tyre a bit at the yeah. time. Um, But if you were to see them, you know, march all the way up to your historic long-term average, then I think you'd be talking about an economy which just wouldn't be able to handle it.
0: It wouldn't be politically sustainable, precisely, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the historical norm Mm. is now no longer even politically possible, Mm. manageable. I mean, you'd have... I mean, again, this sounds like... (laughs) Hyperbole, it would be a sort of revolutionary situation. It would not be manageable, right, because so many people would be made homeless. We, we are pointing at a patient on a life support machine yeah. and claiming that he's
1: physically well-enabled, yeah. which, as far as I know, isn't something economists do. It's something that only ATOS do. But that is, wh- that is what we are doing when we call this a recovery.
0: Here is a statistic. I wrote an article for the LRB earlier this year in February, just like your piece on Enfield, actually. Um, and I took a bit of data from The Guardian, Here we go. Late last year, the bank reported, the Bank of England, that average outstanding mortgage debt remains high at £87,000, like you alluded to, and that any rate rise not accompanied by an increase in real wages would cause serious problems. Mm. The number of households most at risk of financial distress would double. Nearly one in six if their mortgage rates went up to 2.5% and their incomes did not improve. This is my point. The bet presently being made by the Chancellor and the Governor of Bank of England, Mark Carney, is that wages will start to go up before interest rates do. I think their hope was that wages would start to go up before the general yeah. election. Like I say last month on the most favourable measure of inflation. If you, you know, include bonuses, sorry, if you include bonuses on wages, it was 1.7%. And then if you took the most favourable measure of inflation, CPI, it was 1.7% as well. So they were on par. Uh, and over the course of the last. Celebrate month, everyone. That was, that's not really happened in the last six years, right? Inflation and yeah. wages have been the same right, for one month. And then, you know, I saw some people on Twitter. I can't remember who these people were. It's like Ian Burrell, I right? yeah, think. Oh, yeah. These are people I don't really, because I'm not a, ju- a journalist, I don't know, these all, but guy has got 12 15,000 followers or whatever. And he's going, oh, that's no longer in the political debate anymore because, you know, wages are now, they're now overtaking inflation. It's uh-huh. like, this is one month. Ian Burrell, who used to work for Cameron, don't forget. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, like, oh, this this is one month in six years, right? And the most favourable measure, incidentally, this month, inflation has gone up back up to 1.8%. Wages uh, have including bonuses are going to go back down to one. Yeah, of course 6. it's not in the
1: political equation Sonny, because you don't want it to be in the political equation but I can tell you that's what people worry about yeah, but, it's,
0: it's just, but it's the same guy, or these same kinds of people mm. until this year they weren't even accepting that wages were below inflation since 2008 you know they were saying no 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 this, this isn't and now they're saying oh no it did happen for yeah. the last six years but actually it stopped now. Um, I, 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 honestly, Aaron,
1: I've no, I've no, I've no time for these people there, there was, there was a more serious species of that same debate, which happened during the, the great, uh, globalization decades of 1990s and 2000s, which is where you would get these very serious, well-meaning economists who'd say, well, you know, it doesn't matter that the jobs are all disappearing from the West and it doesn't matter that wages are being sat upon, um, because actually your average Western worker can now afford to buy TVs made in China. And they'll be cheaper than what they could have bought, even when they had a proper job in the Mm. West. Mm -hmm. So therefore, this proves that actually we're still better off than wherever we were. And of course, as soon as the cheap leverage stops, as soon as the cheap interest rates stop, well then, what happens? There's a bust.
0: Another point with regards to this cheap, you know, the whole point about, you know, cheap. So like we have talked about so many times on the show before, sorry for repeating myself. The, you know, the base and the superstructure, you know, they're tied up with each other, right? The point is, the superstructure, the ideology of capitalism after the mid-1970s depends upon that base, which is the introduction onto the global labour market of the global south, especially after 1989. Eastern Europe, Russia, China, India, India, early 90s. Um, And so these people come onto the global labour market. The price of consumer durables plummet. That means you can keep wages in the global north, the wealthy economies of the global north, stagnant because people are buying increasingly cheap consumer durables right so even though your wages aren't really going up the stuff you're buying is cheaper and cheaper so great example is vhs right vhs player in the mid 80s i think my dad my mum made my dad buy one right and he still won't stop talking about it it cost him like a thousand pounds or something right it's like <laughs> a month's savings for a vhs player no. these are the kinds of things now that the working classes the equivalent kinds of commodities even an iphone 5 or a macbook really are much cheaper mm. in terms of what they're costing in real terms than those kinds of mm. consumer goods in the in the, in the 80s but the, the, the point is that political economy has is going, mm. right? And we've talked about this on the show so many times before. Ashok Kumar, great article about the uh, UAUN strikes yeah. in China. Very good, very good, yeah. The, the end of Asia, the yeah. end of China, post China global economy. We know that wages in East Asia, particularly the ASEAN economies, China, but also places like Vietnam, Thailand, they're going up. And so capital to keep these consumer durables cheap, which is part of that post 70s compact, um, is now looking to other places, right? And they thought vietnam and thailand were it they think burma Myanmar, is it and increasingly now since since the uh victory of modi in india they're now saying oh actually india might fit into these supply chains pretty well too the last week has shown incredible scenes in in across asia right they're calling this uh, i read it in the ft two days ago the asian spring i don't know if you heard about this right so you're now getting vietnamese workers so U A U N. they had that strike in china last yeah. month they said well it's okay because we've got diverse supply chains we've got a factory in Vietnam. it's okay the fact that factory's been torched because of sort of anti-Taiwanese, anti-Chinese sentiment. Or maybe it's not been torched, but they had to shut it down. Loads of Chinese, Taiwanese businesses specifically, Foxconn is Taiwanese, don't forget, yeah. have had to shut down because of anti-Chinese, anti-Taiwanese sentiment. So a lot of these Asian countries, there's a return of nationalism as well as um, wages going up. We've talked about it on the show before, Africa could be that next frontier for uh, foreign direct investment because it's still got an incredibly cheap labour base. But the point is, African economies don't have the Chinese Communist Party, right? So you can have a huge, cheap labour market in Nigeria, but if you haven't got a very, very strong state building the kinds of infrastructure, offering the kinds of enterprise zones that China has done since Deng Xiaoping, then that can't happen. It doesn't look like Africa's capable of doing that. Only possibility there then is these kinds of... We're already seeing it now in places like Ethiopia with Qatar, this huge agribusiness. They buy 100,000 hectares. Maybe we'll get, you know... You know, People talk about neo-colonialism, I mean this would be genuine, kind of, how neo is it? You know, you may have like tens of thousands of hectares in South Sudan being bought up by Chinese companies with, you know, Sudanese workers, but, you know, secured, insured, the rule of law being kept essentially by uh, Chinese companies, the Chinese state as well in part. So all that to one side, durables can't stay this cheap forever, right, because the workers struggle in East Asia and it's questionable whether Africa can repeat the trick. But also rates can't stay this low forever either so both sides of that equation in terms of demand in the west and in terms of that post 70s compact don't really make sense in the medium term i'm not talking next year i'm talking you know as the decade progresses right so what's your take on this and how out of touch are political elites because i am uh, you know i'm not going to talk about any of your sort of uh, not yeah i'm not going to talk about anybody at the guardian you know but you know throughout the media political establishment and you know, these are these seem like such hackney terms out of touch establishment. You know, I mean, really? I mean, do they recognize the scale of what this is? Or is this just. It seems like you know, the, the, in British politics it's kind of vulgar to discuss the kind of macroeconomic context of these issues. Or am I being unfair? <sighs>
1: I've got a lot of sympathy with your analysis, but I would ask you to tie it back into what we were just talking about with the British economy. Mm. Uh, the British economy is a story of how the unsustainable is sustained okay, I think it's quite possible to imagine that happening in scale across Asia too. Uh, But that's the story of capitalism, right? Yes, exactly, of course, and always moving problems one spot to another, okay? So, what I kind of bridle against a little, sometimes, is when I hear people talk quite blithely about post-Fordism or they say, this cannot go on like that because X plus Y equals Z. Mm. And I'm not saying that those forces aren't there. Mm. I'm not saying X and Y don't exist, but I'm simply saying that all kinds of other things can happen mm-hmm. to that equation before it ends up at the, at the equal sign. And that's, and now I, I'm here. I'm, I really am thinking out loud. I didn't know that you were going to ask me these kinds of searching questions, Aaron, but I suppose that's why I like being a journalist actually, Aaron, is because I think one of the great, Privileges it gives you is that you can see how these forces actually do work out, how the unsustainable does get sustained, what the various actors do. Um, I'll just come back to Asia briefly, but then I, I think we should talk a bit more about Britain. Yeah. But but just, I thought Ashok Kumar's piece was very good on China. Um, the only the only thing I'd add to it is, and and to that analysis that you you described was there are. Recurrent episodes of work unrest across Asia uh, in China, that has been going on for years. The, the, the industrialized uh, the kind of newly industrialized working class, who, you know, perhaps one of the great unsung figures of the of, of the world economy is the, the Chinese worker who's arrived from a village in a big city and is suddenly forced to work on a, on a factory an assembly line for the first time in their life and has got a second-hand phone, which was given to them by the family before they got on the bus and came to, uh, you know, one of these special enterprise zones. That kind of unrest by those figures has been going on for years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I myself originally come from, uh, my my origins are are Indian, uh, and my family's from Calcutta. And actually in Calcutta, where they have uh, a, a long tradition kind of left worker organisation one, one of the most famous stories I remember has been told quite recently actually about 10 years ago I was told of um, a factory in Calcutta where the boss had asked everyone to do overtime and then not paid them and so as, at, at the end of their overtime shift the workers simply put the boss through the mangle and he died so just just this idea that workers suddenly rise up. This, this as you said, that that kind of cliche, of the Asian Spring, and these people suddenly find their I think their it was Asian. tongue in cheek. Of yeah. course, you of course you were, yeah. and, and I I, I, fully, I fully accept that. But j- just be aware there are ways in which these you know th- these things can change, even within India. If I think about India, you mentioned Modi just now. Modi's from Gujarat. In, in, in Calcutta, there was going to be, or rather in West Bengal, of, of the, the province of which uh, Calcutta's the capital, there was going to be this factory uh, run by Tata making these smart cars, super small smart cars, cheapest cars in yeah, the world. Yeah. Uh, it was all set to go, go, go there. And then the peasants on whose land it was going to be rose up in protest. The end of that deal. The communists who were in charge of West Bengal were forced to kind of rip up the agreement. Tata then gets a text from Modi saying, welcome to Gujarat. Now, those same super small cars we've been producing in Gujarat, the problem can always be displaced until finally you, you run out of place to displace mm. it to. But I, I think the, the, the interest as a reporter is seeing how and where it gets displaced to.
0: Mm. I mean, we're going to return to the UK. What I want to quickly respond <laughs> to that is... Look, no, no, because you wouldn't let it lie. Go on. No, no, no. Because I agree. With you. I just want to say I agree yeah. with you, right? Yeah. Uh, but also the analysis of like where next that India's GDP per head is still massively lower yeah. than China. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you still have a massively agrarian yeah. economy. Yeah. Women are barely on the labour market, mm. you know. Rates of literacy are nowhere near China. You know. So in terms of slack and in terms of growth opportunities, we'll take out the environment because that is incredibly limited. In- I, I agree. Yeah. But in terms of the kind of old school, oh, okay, factors of production, land, yeah. people, capital, how much growth is there left in the world? I mean, we know it's not perpetual. I'm inclined to agree. I think it's 100 years. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. I, don't, I don't subscribe to that. I'm just saying it's clear that the compact in terms of the political economy of um, globalization gave rise to cheap consumers in the West. And it seems that they, can't, they certainly can't be cheaper than they've been. And it seems that the 1990s in particular now seems like a historical era. <laughs> a golden period, yeah. In terms of how you manage populations in the global mm. north and how that ties in with the production of cheaper consumer durables ju- 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 in the global south. I think that can be repeated. I don't think that's like, oh, it's a one-off trick, but I, th- I certainly don't think it's as slick and as easily manageable as that because that-, that required the China... And like you say, India, it's a federal it's a federal state. It's not like China. It's in- it's a hell of a lot more difficult to mm-hmm. manage in terms of the kinds of labour and oh. you're talking about than China oh. was after Deng. Anyway, oh. UK. Housing crisis. So you said as a journalist, this is a nice place to sort of hang the, hang the conversation. You said as a journalist, it means you get to see... Uh, things for yourself I suppose it's the first it's history and it's kind of draft version <laughs> history journalism. and it's first emoticon yeah <laughs> so you you go around the country you did this piece on uh, that came out on Sunday fantastic piece mm. that housing crisis that people talk about you know and politicians say oh it's at the kitchen table or something is it how many people in your experience are talking about that cost of living crisis but particularly around housing how central is it in people's everyday problems and difficulties and just surviving. Okay, so move to um, come with me
1: to Woodbury Down Estate which is where I wrote, where, where I and Sophie, we, we wrote that piece about the kind of the turnaround that was going on uh, in this estate which is at the northern fringes of Hackney. Uh, it's in a place called Manor House which is kind of n- almost where inner London meets outer London. Okay? And the kind of conversations that you had there Obviously, we were going to ask people about what their experiences were of this kind of regeneration. But what I noticed was they were everyone we talked to, whether they were someone who'd recently moved into the flash new blocks so overlooking the reservoir and were renting privately, or someone who was renting off the council and had done so for decades, they were all talking about the cost of living, especially as it related to housing. They were all talking about housing and how it related to them. I think it has come to... A kind of inflection point where the London housing market no longer, you know, serves a sufficient number of people to make the, the, the political arith- arithmetic uh, add up. Um, but before getting kind of too deep into kind of discussion of that, uh, I should give a bit of context to um, yeah. for for everyone who's not read read that, that very famously long piece.
0: Very few, everybody's read it. Uh,
1: so it's. As I say, it, it's, it's, it's a housing estate where the big promise, and this is something I'd, I, I'd, I'd ask you to think about, is that great abstract noun of the promise. That is one of the things that sustains capitalism, especially in its most barbaric phases. The 1990s looks like a golden age for globalisation because it was full of promises about how all this would work out. This housing estate was redeveloped from the middle of the last decade with plenty of promises about how it would look by the end. And what you see over the process is how those promises are whittled away uh, and how they change shape. And yet, you end up with an estate which is very different from the kind of horror stories that you and James Butler have talked about uh, on your podcast before. It's not like the Haygate. You don't get stories where where the sums manifestly don't add up. You don't get stories of people kind of being dragged out, Mm. um... What you do have is a story of a big developer, Barclay Homes, a FTSE 250 developer, whose head, uh, the backstory goes, was a former Barnardo's boy, now worth 160 million quid, whose head, Tony Pidgeley, uh, likes to give speeches about how be down is kind of an exemplary model. Where the mayor... Boris Johnson talks about Woodbury Down as an exemplary model, where the, ha- the, 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 the housing minister, Nick Bowles, talks about exemplary, where there are surveys aplenty which suddenly show how marvellous and how, how conveniently happy everyone is to be living there. If you go there, uh, you come out of the tube, you walk down Seven Sisters Road, uh, and you see these giant towers. Uh, and typically people talk about council housing as being all about high-rises. Actually, that high-rise... The single big high-rise on the estate is a private high-rise that was created quite recently. And you go through, and there's this beautiful uh, uh, scene around the two reservoirs uh, where you can go canoeing and all the rest of it. And um, there's a a private block next to a social housing block next to an affordable housing block. Those are the kind of key key three buildings you see. There are more buildings, but those are the key three ones. Uh, And then you'll see about nearly 500 people scurrying around in hard hats, throwing up the rest of the block. So you see plenty and plenty of cranes. I think one of Barclays' boasts is it's got the biggest freestanding crane in Europe. I don't know how that counts, I suppose, but it, it does. Um, and the the one of those flats in the private uh, block went for a million quid. Which in Manor House, if you t- you know if you tell anyone in Manor House that went for a million quid, that what in Manor House? Um, and if you go from the social housing block into the private housing block, you'll get stopped at door by security who will say, what is your business here? The facilities which are available to those in private housing uh, for which they pay a pretty penny are not available to anyone else in the estate.
0: What facilities are those? Uh, you get a gym.
1: There's a swimming pool on, on the way. If you go around the estate, um, you will see hoardings of a swim pool. That swim pool will be off limits to the vast majority of people living on the estate at the moment. The other big promise that that Hackney, uh, which is a labor on council, uh, uh, you know, very strong, strong Labour um, uh, stronghold, uh, have always said is: you will end up, as a result of redevelopment, with the same uh, with uh, affordable housing. Forty percent of the estate will be affordable housing. In fact, you will have uh, as good a proportion of of social rental housing as you did before the redevelopment. Not so. at the moment, you've got something like, well, before, before the development even began, you had something like 2,000 homes, council homes or former council homes on the estate. Um, of those, about 1,500, about 75% of the estate was rented from the council. By the end of this, you, that proportion will go down to just over uh, 1,000. So 1,000 social rented homes. There will then be another 1,200 affordable homes, which are not that affordable, say that, say, say a lot of people, because uh, a lot of leaseholders who are being pushed out of the state, they don't get the same rights. Um, they're being made risible offers on their homes and being told, well, you can buy one of these new affordable homes or take a stake in them. They can't afford them.
0: How much are these on average? Um, what kind of wage would you require to afford one of these affordable well,
1: homes? Well, on, on, on the market, what you'll see for a two-bed in Manor House, mm. let me remind you, is uh, four hundred grand.
0: And that's for the affordable homes.
1: Yeah. Now you will be given help in buying these these homes, right? So you'll be given us. You you'll be able to put in all your your CPO money, and the council will not charge you rent for the extra that you've you've gone short on, and you'll be able to build your way up towards it. But. You know, just before I I came over to you uh, this afternoon, I was sent an email by someone on Woodby Down who is a leaseholder. So she does not get the same rights as those who are social, you know, who are renting off the council. Mm -hmm. The ones who are renting from the council are guaranteed homes Mm -hmm. somewhere in Hackney, most likely on the estate. Um, But this woman is not not as secure as those. And she's been told, well, I've got uh, a three bed home in inner London, in Hackney. What do you think that's worth? And she says, do you think it's worth 500? Do you think it's worth 400? I'm being offered 200. What is 200 grand meant to buy you in London if you've got a family?
0: Nothing, right? Right. I mean, you'd be starting at three 300 for a family right. home, and that's certainly not in zones one
1: right. or two. So this is how housing and the cost of living crisis and all the stuff that you, you were just talking about, that's, this is how it begins to factor in, because these people have suddenly been forced to make these decisions very, very quickly about what they're going to do. And and so the kind of stories that we were running into, Sophie and I, as we went round the estate, were of people who... Well, there's a woman who... who Features in a piece called Veronica, who has lived on the estate for decades and, you know, she she's um, in her 70s and has now moved out to Ipswich. And yet all her family, including her parents, still live in London. So she has to commute about once a month as her mm. treat. But that was not an outlier story. There was lots of stories of people moving out to the home counties or about to move out somewhere to the home counties because they could afford to live on a housing estate somewhere outside London. There is a, a story that was going around the estate when we first began reporting. Of a family that had made such a reasonable offer that then a private company came in with a second offer. They took the private company's offer uh, and now they're living in a caravan.
0: So these are pretty dreadful stories,
1: right? And they're mm. all um And this is a
0: dreadful stories on an on the yeah. exemplary story, yeah. right? That that's the thing that really strikes me about the story would be down. And I mean, th- and that it was very important for you to point out just before you started talking about Woodbury Down is that this is not the Haygate. No. This is how the. This is the system working at its finest. Yeah. This
1: is the Rolls Royce of regenerations.
0: Yeah. And these aren't outliers. So I want to ask you that makes me angry, let alone the people that, you know, um, who suffer uh, the consequences, of these, these, this management, stroke mismanagement of, of what's going on here. So, what political expressions are there of that anger? Or do they just internalize it all? Because that's what it sounded to me. It's sort of like, I mean, the, the story in particular of the woman who had to commute from Ipswich was just...
1: Well, I don't understand well, how, I you, found it how
0: you uh, how you make sense of that.
1: The thing that really struck me, Aaron, and again, it's not a convenient answer, is that the amount of demoralisation that you'd come across on your estate. So lots of people were angry, furious. Mm. There was a pensioner I talked to who's disabled... Uh, and after the piece came out, she, she said to Sophie how pleased she was with it mm. and said, if you want me to go and start a ruck, I'm quite happy to go and kick it off. This is the disabled penitentiary talking. So there are two problems that they've got, though. One is that they've got a residence committee, which, meant, which is meant to be their kind of vehicle for dealing with Hackney Council and uh, Barclay Homes. And the residence committee, there's an awful lot of discontent against it. Uh, if you go below the line of the um, internet version of the piece, you'll see there's a guy called Jeff Bell who takes us to task for not quoting him in the piece, even though we met him something like three times over the course of research in the piece, interviewed him at length. There, his, some of the, actually his advisor is quoted in the piece, but not him. and I, Perhaps that's part of why he's so angry. Um, but he says, oh, well, you didn't quote, quote me, and so you, you therefore make sound like a totally hopeless picture. In fact, we've been consulted all along. And then if you look further up the thread, then there are all sorts of other would-be-downers residents who say, actually, we don't feel like we're being consulted at all. In fact, we feel like we've been sold completely short. And there are letters that were written to the paper by people who say, well, actually, we feel like the Residents Committee is is part of the problem in that they are there simply to ameliorate the worst aspects of the redevelopment that we're presented with. So so there's a problem there in that the, you get a kind of uh, under the... facade of consultation you actually get people who are just deliberately who desperately trying to fight a rearguard action so any minor concession begins to seem like a tremendous triumph but the second thing is this is we met a woman uh, who lives in a flat in one of the old council flats uh, and her walls completely decorated black mould, she works two jobs so it's very difficult to pin her down well the first thing she says upon meeting is I'm not on Benefit Street. I don't claim any benefits. The pensioner says, I don't claim any benefits. She's on pensions and disabled benefit, but that's it. You know, I'm not anything else. I'm not a sink. Uh, Turkish guy. I'm not an illegal immigrant. I pay taxes. I work. They are... Th- this regeneration fits into uh, an entire backdrop of these people feeling as though they've been dispossessed from their own lives. And not just in terms of their own housing, but in terms of who they are, who they're allowed to be when they walk down the street. They must be either the victims or they must be the villains. Right? They can't be anything else. Mm. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I can't imagine being in that situation. It makes me think a bit about... I mean, this is slightly jumping the gun because you, you want to talk about Enfield and where, what, what I've been reporting on there, but... Um. I'll, I'll, I'll just bring that in briefly now if I may which is if you go further out from Manor House if you go further north you end up in another London borough it's, it's a, you can actually take a bus there it's about 40 minutes bus ride away and one of the Turkish restaurant owners who we talked to he's ended up there you know, he runs a kebab shop out there that's actually where I grew up it's in a place called Edmonton uh, which is in the eastern part of Enfield uh, and it's a very funny place geographically it's a funny place because you look at it and it's cut off from the posh half of the borough in, in Enfield, uh, which is where Michael Portillo used to be MP um, and then famously in 1997 was defeated. But there's two halves to Enfield and the poor half is, is Edmonton Ponder's end. And basically the, the A406 cuts it off at the top. And then all along, from the, dividing it from the posh side is the Great Cambridge Road. And right at the end, there's, there's the M25. So this is the right as you're leaving London entirely. And then just to f- complete the idea of these uh, of, of the fencing off, a reservoir, the Lee Valley, uh, runs along the side of it and all the industrial estates run, run along the, the, the other side. So you, you have effectively a, almost like a geographical jail for people. Now, I never thought of it as a jail when I was growing up there. I lived there for most of my, yeah, most of my early life uh, and I moved away when I was about 16 or something and then I went off to college and that, that was that. But I never really thought of it as being anywhere that would kind of contain me. I went you know, off and around and I went to school in Stamford Hill and uh, I, I went out. I always felt like a completely free agent. When I began reporting on what it's like there now, I went and spoke to some of the people who grew up, who, who actually live where I grew up. Um, and one of the saddest things I heard from them was I'd say to them, so what do you do when you go out? Well, we, we hang out around here. And I say, well, don't you ever go out to central London? And they went, well, we go, but it's not calm. It's not, it's not calm. And I, I didn't understand this word calm. What, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, basically, the, what they meant was they didn't feel at home. It wasn't their place. They felt out of their depth when they went outside Edmonton, Haringey. Um, They felt they didn't belong. And so they preferred to stay around the streets where they grew up because that's what they know and that sense of a limiting of possibilities i mean made me so melancholy I, I can't tell you Aaron. the weird thing was was that after writing that piece about Enfield, i got an email from a guy who, who lives in australia now and he said i read your piece about Enfield. actually i grew up on this road and i, I thought hang on that's a road just off the one that i grew up mm. on and he goes actually when i was growing up in edmonton uh I uh, I used to go out to gigs and all that kind of thing. and I thought well, that's exactly my my story as well. You know, I used to go out the entire time, and uh, then I went on to manage Polly Harvey, and I formed a record label, and then I left and went to Australia, and I was having a great time. And I so I emailed him and said, you know, listen to this. This is the story of people who who live in the areas where where we grew up now, and it's just that sense of the limiting of possibilities, chafing against stereotypes that other people hang around your neck. Your lack of agency.
0: Why is that a new thing? Because you're saying you didn't feel it, or were you just uh, were you the outlier, or, 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 or is that something that goes back as well, and you just weren't aware of when you were younger, or has something changed? I think
1: something has changed, um, and I don't think I, I, I don't
0: think it is just me because
1: I think this other guy's story also tells you that. Mm. But the people that I grew up with around Edmonton, I never heard that kind of expression from them about, oh, we can't go out here, we can't go out there. Edmonton is dreadful for, for 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 getting into Central. And I will say that you have to take these long buses. You then you have to get on a train, and it's it's not it's not an easy process. But I was not aware of there being a kind of you know invisible gate that that, that kept me locked in. Um. But that sense of a diminution of possibilities was brought home to me in another context by a local police officer who worked with some of these young people, mm. and. They had an emergency meeting in Edmonton after the riots of 2011, because Edmonton was was part of the riots. It was mm-hmm. it was always like ground zero of the riots, because if you look on a map, it was right where, uh, you know, right next door to uh, to, to Tottenham. Uh, and actually, my abiding memory when I was growing up was the Broadwater Farm riots, um, or uprising, as your guest last week called it. Uh, but, but, but. But after the 2011 riots, that they they had a meeting in Edmonton, and it was what's gone wrong. what's gone wrong, and there was a guy there who went, um, who who was from from one you know from one of these pe- people I talked to, and he put his hand up and he said, "You lot," and he meant the adults and the kind of community leaders and concerned mm. citizens in the room. You lot talked about all these possibilities and things that we can do. I don't understand it. He goes, "I look in my local paper and I see there are jobs for ten grand a year." He goes those sort of jobs aren't for me. And I went to the police officer, what, do you, what did he mean it weren't for me? He goes, he meant that those jobs were too good for him. They were not the sort of jobs that he felt eligible for.
0: It's a £10,000 a year job, right? I mean, that's not going to even...
1: Exactly. Yeah. Again, I suppose that part part of what, what's changed, Aaron, is that, even when I, I was there and obviously I, I'm not 600 years old I, I, I grew up there you know maybe a generation for these these people but even when I was there there was still light industry which could employ people it was dying on its ass at the time it, it, there was a Royal Arms, Royal Small Arms Factory uh, which Thatcher, <laughs> Thatcher privatised and, and then it shut uh, in '86, I think. Uh, and I don't want to big up the role of the arms trade, but there was th- 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 that was kind of one of the big employers. There, there were a whole range of uh, local industrial employers which would pay. Not just a living wage as, it kind of, as it's politically co- constituted, but, was, but what would be recognised a living wage. Not a, a brilliant wage, but, but enough. And terms and conditions, including a pension, that kind of thing. And even if I wanted a summer job, uh, which uh, I needed when I was a student to go away on holiday and stuff, I could go and work in a factory humping doors. Uh, now, as you can see from looking at me, I'm, I'm not half your size, so I found it quite a job to hump these doors for a veneering thing. But the fact is, I, I got enough money to go away to, to Turkey. Now, if I, the nearest thing I'd get to a manufacturing job nowadays, if I were in that position now, would be humping donuts through the local right. Dunkin' Donuts factory, because that is what has replaced it. All those fa- industrial estates, light industrial estates, have turned into big box retailers uh, and fast food outlets.
0: So we've got, how long have we got? We've got 15 minutes left. You're listening to Navara FM here on Residence 104.4 FM London, London's number one radio station. I'm talking to Aditya Chakraborty, senior economics correspondent. Commentator. Commentator. <laughs> uh, at the Guardian. Uh, I'm I-
1: saying commentator because it's not as noble a thing as being a correspondent, I think. At least a correspondent's meant to report. No, what do well, commentators do? Sound well, off.
0: Oh, wait, I'm not a fan of commentators, as <laughs> you probably well know in general, <laughs> I do know. but you're, you're a notable <laughs> exception. Um, you're one of the few sort of big names we've managed to get on without sort of trolling them first on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, you have got a very unusual chat-up technique, Karen. I must say. <laughs> um, you're an ass. Will you come on
1: my podcast. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, it seems to work sometimes. <laughs> um, so we've got 15 minutes left. We've talked about that very large piece that was out on Sunday. Mm. We've talked about some of the kind of mm. the... Uh, kind of almost ethnographic detail, some of these anecdotes you were talking about, the the woman who lived in Ipswich, Mehmet, I think his name was the... Mehmet, in,
1: of, uh, yeah, in Edmonton now, yeah. Uh,
0: so let's move to this Enfield experiment thing. You've talked mm. about Enfield. Mm. Towards the end of that piece, which I say was out in February, um, you sort of try and draw lessons from it. Um, and this is the final paragraph. You talk about things like local banks being started in Salford and kind of experiments in... Domestic political economies. Mm. Well, mm. political. Domestic, domestic economies, local economies. Sure. And that ties into things like transition towns, local currencies. Yeah. Not talked about here, but... Yeah. James would hate me using these words, social innovation sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> at, at the very local level, at the micro mm-hmm. level. Um, and you talk about all that. And then the final uh, statement is this. It's either that or spend the next two years listening to Miliband and Cameron bicker over, over who's got the bigger pea shooter to aim at the banks. I know which I'd rather follow. So you'd rather follow that debate about the Enfield experiment. So then my question is this we've got just over 10 minutes left and some concluding thoughts about what we've talked about are those emergent grassroots quote unquote local solutions to the crisis sufficient to um, inspire the young man you talked about who felt he simply wasn't good enough for a job that paid £10,000 a year. Is it are they capable, when they're all tied together, of offering a, a vision of something? You talked about hopes and promises. What kinds of hopes and promises are possible? We we call them sort of um, achievable utopias, if sort of Eric Olin Wright kind of <laughs> vocabulary. What kind of achievable utopias can we take from those lessons and offer to these people? Or do you not see that? Right. So you're so saying this, the peace shooter with the banks is, and I agree, it's, yeah. it's nothing. It's yeah. a spectacle that's not really going to offer anything anytime soon. So.
1: so Woodbury Down is in the London Borough of Hackney. Uh, London, the London Borough of Rainfield is not very far away from L- L- London Borough of Hackney. Okay. So th- th- there's, there's, there's Harringay in between. Um, and what I found really interesting uh, what I find really interesting about these two boroughs is there are very different ways of accommodating themselves to what you might loosely call neoliberal economics. Okay. In the first one, you get uh, uh, a London Borough of Hackney which is blithely says, "Okay, well, we need to work with a big developer to turn around this housing estate, and we'll get the best deal we can, and that will have to be enough." And this is that does understate the difficulties that uh, any London, any local government faces in dealing with big capital, in dealing with the settlement that's imposed on it from central government. But that effectively is a choice that Hackney has made. Uh, and the reaction it's had to, th- to that regeneration piece, I think, tells you a lot about how uncomfortable it feels when it's challenged on the accommodations and compromises it's made. Why I find Enfield fascinating isn't just because I'm from there, but it's because of the things that it started to do recently. So Enfield is a very, it's very different politically from Haringey, in, in, from Hackney, in that it swings between the Tories and, and Labour. And actually in the local elections, it looks like the, the Labour run council has actually extended its hold uh in and taking more seats of the tories but it goes between the two um and in a way it's kind of got all the problems of an inner london borough but without all the kind of hipster in it, you know hipster uh tinges because there's there's no guys with beers roaming the streets there, there's no tube um in the eastern part of the borough um it's 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 quite remote. It's that level of remoteness because it's you know it's, it's forty minutes away from 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 from, ha- from Hackney even from inner London. So it's the kind of bit of London which people don't think of as being the the banks, the 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 the, the media, restaurants, you know, the big towers. It's none of those things, and yet it is within the M twenty five. And um, the story goes with with Enfield is. Uh, it's had three great things happen to it. Three big forces. One is the industrialisation we talk, talked about. Two is this kind of influx of people from outside the borough, uh, which is only accelerated with welfare cuts. Mm. So as people cannot afford to, to rent privately houses uh, on their benefits within the in an inner London, they come out to places like 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 uh, Edmonton. So that creates a huge problem in the housing stock uh, within en- Enfield. Um, and then the, the third thing is simply local government spending cuts which we all know about local government is a big loser in austerity it's, it's kind of the silent loser in all of this because the, the, the settlements get imposed upon local government it has to deal with and it doesn't have the same voice in the national press and
0: so, this, this, is, this is going to be cut by was it you said by half?
1: oh god I mean it's already been cut some, by something like a, a third yeah. and I think they were talking about making uh, another third a third of cuts so it would be something like a half by the end yeah, yeah. Um. And so they're having to do with all these things um, and then the riots come along and suddenly you have to start thinking very seriously about what you do. The other thing that makes Enfield particularly fascinating is the Labour people there are completely ignored by the Labour people in Westminster, unlike the people of Hackney, where the London Borough of Hackney, you get into L- L- Hackney Labour politics as a kind of fast route to getting into Westminster, yeah. right? You don't do that when you go to Enfield Labour. You, you do it because you kind of you've got no other choice. These are people who are completely ignored by their own party. I asked one of the kind of senior councillors there when was the last time someone from Front Bench Labour came and talked to you uh, a couple of years ago, I asked him this. He said, oh, just after Tony Blair became leader, so sometime in the mid-90s. Completely out of sight. And so these people, without kind of the the grooming of of Westminster politics, suddenly think, well, what, what earth do we do? And they First of all, they do the, the classic thing that, that local government do. They go to a big expensive consultancy. The big expensive consultancy says, you just do all the conventional things, get into a beauty contest with other local authorities, see how much private in, uh, investment you can suck in, just by seeing more compliant than the rest, mm-hmm. and try and have as much transport as you can, by the way. Uh, it tries to do that, finds nothing doing. It then gets in a think tank, and the think tank says... "Well, Which think tank? Um, the... I think that the MPI, I can't remember what it stands for, New Policy Institute or something like that. They're good. But effectively, they produce a, a short thing which says, you're really screwed. And here's all the very social dimensions of how you're screwed. Okay, And then, in desperation, one of the guys goes to uh, uh, two academics, one from Manchester, one from uh, Queen Mary now, uh, who are part of CRESC. And they say, please, can we give some ideas? And those guys don't take any money whatsoever, but the, for their, their only payment is Enfield have to hold three conferences devoted to discussing what kind of solutions Enfield might put into place. Okay, mm. So why I find that so interesting is it's a story of people with very few other options having to form coalitions very, very quickly and trying to work out what levers they can pull. Mm. That's what's so interesting about it. As compared to the picture in Westminster, where people have got all kinds of levers but they don't want to touch them, right? Or, or they're so blink they won't touch them, um, and and so I don't I don't think of it in terms of achieving utopias. In fact, I, th- I see it as basically we're, the Guardian started to cover Enfield, or rather, I've started to cover Enfield, thinking that the more and more of these ideas that it does, so it's not it started to get into big hand to hand fights with the big six utility firms and says says. Hey, Mr. BG, Mr. British Gas, why don't you invest in it in Enfield? You take enough of our money. Why don't you give, create any jobs here? If you don't, we'll start telling all our voters that they shouldn't be um, uh, giving you their business because they, obviously you are not interested in investing in us. They've, and they do that to all big six. Mm-hmm. Four of the big six say, we're not listening to this, and walk out. Mr. British Gas says, please don't do that with your voters. I'll give you some jobs, and I'll try and work out how I can give you some more investment. Okay, But then the next thing they do is they start going, why don't we get into market gardening? Why does not Enfield Council suddenly get into market gardening? We'll start growing tomatoes and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so they start doing this. Um, they've got all kinds of quite amazing uh, proposals on a whole raft of things which you'll start to see emerge. I'm not going to say too much now, partly because I don't want to uh, um, squirrel away, give out my own stories because I'm trying to squirrel them away. But... They've got all kinds of really quite unconventional choices which they're making because they've been forced to. Mm. And that's what I see as being the story of local government is that if you look at the Scotland debate, if you look at what's going on in in Wales, and if you look at what's going on in places like uh, like Enfield, you're talking about places which one by one have gone... Screw this! We're not waiting around for Westminster to catch, you know, to to come and give us a, a, its sweeties anymore. And we've certainly given up on big capital riding by and throwing us some kind of cursory inward investment, and then you know sodding off again after ten years, which has been the story of local, you know, local areas in Britain over the past, you know, twenty years.
0: So, say that point about the big six. I mean the you know the, the way that the media represents it to us normally is it's the like Ed Miliband, is throwing toys out the pram. He's had yeah. it with the big six. Oh. What you're saying is actually there's a more granular perhaps less visible right. relationship so between it's a fa- so it's a politics fascinating, it's and a fascinating the big story. Six. It's a
1: fascinating story, right? One of these councillors is from California, mm. right? He's always going on to me about like, Thomas Piketty this or some other book that he's read. This is a councillor. Yeah, a councillor, yeah. right? And uh, the other one is quite cautious, uh, very measured, very good uh, Greek guy called Achilles so Achilles and Alan the California right Achilles is the one by the way who got into hand-to-hand combat with a far right in Enfield mm-hmm. in the late 70s early 80s so he's not quite as cautious and conservative, as you have you believe there's a bit of steelness there but they get together they sit in a room they call in the representatives of the big six and they put that question to him what are you going to do for Enfield what have you done for Enfield recently OK, and then eyeball them. And one of them nice and say, hey, you know, we could have all kinds of positive publicity opportunities from this. And the other one's nasty and say, well, if you don't play, then you might imagine what's going to happen. There's also a bit of central government funding for retrofitting old housing stock. Mm-hmm. OK, and making it more um, environmentally friendly. OK, so they're hoping to tap into that. But what they want is the big six not just take that eco money, as it's known, and get their own kind of contractors in to do the work. They want them to employ as many Edmonton people as possible, and they will get into a scrap with these big six unless they do so. So, as I say, four of the big six is up, leave one goes. Yeah, I get your, I, I get what you're saying, guys. But really, you need to talk to my supply chain, not me. Mm. Uh, not much I can do. And as I say, with the six on British Gas, they go, no, no, no. no let's let, let's let's come to a deal.
0: So that picture between of a sort of. The politics of energy, for instance, is far more complex as a patina that isn't just national Westminster politics. But Absolutely also, not. And that's happening arguably Absolutely not, and it's not, and it's, it's not, it's not due
1: lobbying and it's not due to special advisers. You're talking about two councillors, i.e. unpaid councillors, who are sitting in a room in a civic centre mm-hmm. having an argument with utility firms. This is, this is kind of... There is a kind of fatalism, which I think both the, 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 the left and the right share, which is you can't do very much about it. Obviously, the right don't want to mess your market, and the far left sometimes think, oh, you know, these forces are inexorable. Mm. Well, these social democratic councillors are doing something which I think is really very entertaining.
0: And how unique is what, I mean, we've got two minutes left. How unique is what they're doing, do you think? Or do you think that's happening in councils? I, in I ran by. In terms of how they're really right, sticking the middle finger up to right, the powerful.
1: I, I, and, and kind of trying to get capital to, to commit to their area. Yeah. I ran a whole variety of proposals by other people and said, is this right? You know, is this as unusual as it seems? Mm. Each and every one, they're like, I've heard of one council thinking of doing something like that or try and do something like that. But you never got anyone that was pulling on all these levers all at the same time and thinking explicitly about what kind of dividend it could get out of big capital and direct towards the people of its own borough.
0: So you're saying people are looking less now to central government, but they're trying... No, I'm not saying that
1: generally. I'm just saying this is a really good example of how it could happen. And I'm not saying that it will necessarily all of it will succeed. Local government only has so many resources. Mm. These people are not professional politicians. They're doing the best they can in a very tight situation with two unfunded, you know, t- two, two academics who they're getting in and pro bono.
0: But, I mean, we've got 30 seconds left, mm. right? I mean, you, you compared that situation of Scotland and Wales. The situation of Scotland has led to a potentially exactly. a political schism. So if you scale it up, so you, my can question, see, yeah. you,
1: can, you can see that if you had a big enough actor, what kind of agency is affordable to them. Yeah.
0: Okay. A on that point. Thank you very much. This is Navara FM, Navara Media on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thank you. See you same time same place next week. Bye. Estevo Suárez en Resonance FM. Y a ti me des qué daze. Men meróni. Mek plisi. Menokhli. Ma prokali. Ke me bnae. Así ya ti bistevs en Resonance FM.